Our gospel lesson is from the Gospel of Luke. Jesus has been baptized by John. The Holy Spirit has descended on him. He's been moved into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. And now our gospel reading begins. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May I speak and may you hear in the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. First of all, can I just say how privileged I feel to give this address at this particular festival and how grateful I am for the welcome given to me by the pastors of the Third Presbyterian Church here in Rochester. I'm delighted to have the baseball cap. <laughs> Bishops normally wear far stranger headgear than that. And I thought it would be gilding the lily too much to bring that with me today. Anyway, I hate having things on my head, especially in church. But I shall wear this baseball cap with pride when I go and play golf, and I shall confuse utterly um, my fellow golfers because they'll think that I've changed denominations in my old age. <laughs> Now, a couple of my grandchildren used to be obsessed with Sam Tarn, Fireman Sam. He was a character, or rather, he is a character, present tense, because to my grandchildren, he was very real. Invented by a Carnarvonshire fireman who sold his rights in Sam Tarn to S4C, the Welsh television channel, who in turn sold them on to some big American company. Big mistake both times, all that, because now Sam Tan is big business. There are Sam Tan books, videos, satchels, pens, cutleries, plates, bottles, tents, pajamas, t-shirts. I know, because we possessed all these things, <laughs> as well as games and cards and posters. Well, what does he do? As his name suggests, he is a fireman who rescues people from fires. But actually, he's a kind of superman because he's into all kinds of rescue. 
So whether people are stuck up a mountain, marooned at sea, have fallen off a cliff, or their buses got stuck in a bog, helped by Penny and Tom and Elvis and Station Master Steele and Raider the Dog, based at the fire station at Pontapandi. I hope you're impressed by my knowledge of all these things. <laughs> Fireman Sam comes to the rescue. And he uses not just the fire engine, Jupiter, but collaborates with a lifeboat called Neptune and a helicopter. And I often used to come across the children using toy mobile phones calling Samtan to an imaginary fire in our sitting room, but played out with all the drama a real fire might cause. And of course, he never lets people down. But why have I told you all this? This image of rescuing people is central to both the Old and the New Testaments. If you actually wanted to sum up God's work, he is a God who is in the rescue business. That's the root meaning of the word salvation. It means being saved from something or someone. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel believed that God had brought them out of slavery in Egypt at the hands of his servant Moses. As today's reading put it, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt, crying out in slavery, so I have come to rescue them, and I'm sending you to bring them out of Egypt. Now that simple utterance of God to Moses reveals what kind of God God is. The world is the object of his love and concern, and the world, the political and secular world is the sphere of his main activity. The world is the theatre of God's relationship with humanity. And the God of the Bible, as distinct from so-called other gods of the ancient Near East, is characterised by the fact that he works in through political events and people. And he reveals himself supremely in the Exodus, in the freeing of the people of Israel from slavery. God liberates his people from economic serfdom and political servitude. He doesn't free them so that they can have a nice religious life. He frees them so that they can have an economic and a political future. In other words, the God of the Old Testament recognised no inner freedom apart from external freedom. Moses felt that God was calling him to lead his people to a new freedom, to form a new society in a new country, free from being subjugated. God, in other words, is concerned not just with worship and ritual, but with the world that he has made and with everything in it. It's revolutionary stuff, really. God liberating Hebrew slaves from oppression and subjugation. And of course, I don't need to tell you that that passage from the Exodus inspired the anti-slavery movement in this country. For ancient Israel, this was its foundation story. Before they came to believe, <clears throat> that God was the creator, they believed that God was the liberator. 
It was what had made them God's chosen people. It defined who they were. And the rescue from Egypt was remembered and celebrated at every single Passover. But the story wasn't told as a past event, but as a present event, a bit like Samtan, rescues enacted by my grandchildren. For this was a story not just about their ancestors having once been rescued from slavery in Egypt, but a story about God's continued rescue of his people. So at every Passover service, Jews would say, forever after in every generation, all of us must think of ourselves as having gone forth from Egypt. God was a God who still brings people out of bondage. The people of Israel experienced the exodus as if it had actually happened to them. Slavery replaced by freedom. But which one of us really doesn't live in bondage to one thing or another? Perhaps we are afraid of something or someone. Perhaps we fear because we have too much to do at work. Or perhaps we have too much wealth or too little wealth. And the Pharaoh who threatens us may well be inside us rather than outside us. We all of us need liberation from things which enslave us, which grind us down in order to enter the promised land, the place where we might find God. The exodus from Egypt is the story of the people of Israel, rescued by God. But it's also a story about us as human beings, journeying from bondage to freedom to live more fully in the presence of God, if we but allow him to set us free. And during his earthly life, Jesus too sought to rescue people not just from their spiritual ailments, but from all manner of diseases. And as a result of his ministry, the lame walked, the blind saw, the deaf heard, and the poor had good news preached to them. People who were in bondage to whatever afflicted them were set free. And so he fed the hungry, healed the sick, raised the dead. He rescued people from everything that diminished or enslaved or threatened them as human beings. And similarly, the gospel claim is that because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we too, as members of his body, are rescued from sin, despair, meaninglessness, disaster and death. And the Bible doesn't talk about these things in abstract terms, but in terms of being set free from slavery, of having our de debts wiped out through the sacrificial offering of himself in Jesus Christ. The very name Jesus, Joshua, means the one who saves, the one who comes to our rescue. God overcomes even the last enemy, death, in raising Jesus to new life and assuring us that we too can share in that new life. When he began his public ministry at Nazareth, St. Luke, as we heard read, says that Jesus announced that he had come 
to preach good news to the poor, freedom for captives, sight to the blind, release for the oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. It's all revolutionary stuff, really, and we just tamed it all. The acceptable year of the Lord was a reference to the year of Jewish Jubilee, when every 50th year, all debts were cancelled and all slaves were set free. Now, we don't know whether this jubilee of liberation from oppression, poverty and debt ever happened, but Jesus preached about freeing people from the grip of everything that ground them down and dehumanized them. What is therefore very clear is that the God of Jesus and the God of the Old Testament is concerned not just with spiritual matters, but with everything that affects or restricts human flourishing, simply because he is the world's creator and has made us human beings in his own image. If we believe in him, we need in our own lives to reflect the way that he acts towards us with generosity and justice towards others. We too need to be liberators. And in one sense, of course, this festival of Welshness too in this city is a thanksgiving for a kind of liberation, the liberation of Welsh culture and language from having too long been dominated by its neighbour. It's paradoxical, really, that I'm speaking to you in English, and it's taken the acts of devolution in Wales from 1997 onwards to give the Welsh language its proper place in the life of our nation and agree a degree of self-government, of course, that it never had before. It's incredible when you think about it that Wales was governed by a Secretary of State for Wales, who very often was not even a Welsh MP. Matthew Arnold, in his Dictionary of National Biography, once wrote, for Wales, see England. <laughs> Is it any wonder, therefore, that Wales for centuries was made to feel second class, and the right to have forms in Welsh, to be represented in court in Welsh, to have a television channel in Welsh, are all very recent. Children were punished in the 19th and early 20th centuries if they used Welsh language in school. Wales knows what it is like to be subjugated linguistically, culturally, politically. And this offer of rescue, of salvation by Jesus, is for all people. It's not for the select few. A bit like being rescued by a lifeboat in the United Kingdom. When a life station receives a distress signal, no inquiry is made about the social status of those who need rescuing, or whether they can pay for being rescued, or whether they are at fault for having got themselves into danger in the first place by being careless in going out without life jackets, or when a storm was forecast. Lifeboats simply go to the rescue. Likewise, the offer of rescue of salvation is for all people, which is why the religious people of Jesus' day 
were offended. He was offering the marginalized, the outcast, the poor, the riffraff, the offer of new life. I have come to call sinners to repentance. So he mixed with and accepted those who were physically, emotionally, and spiritually crippled, as well as those on the margins and the edges of respectability, and gave them new life. It is this offer of new life that is being given to you and to me by the risen Jesus. And this salvation, this rescue, offered by Jesus, like any lifeboat rescue, is free at the point of delivery. But that doesn't mean to say that it doesn't cost something. Lifeboats cost an enormous amount to maintain, all by voluntary giving in Britain. But they cost too, of course, in terms of the risk taken by crews who go out in all weathers to answer distress calls. Our rescue too is free, but it's not cheap. In Jesus Christ, we see the self-living, the self-giving love of God poured out for the world. As R.S. Thomas puts it, you have answered us with the image of yourself on a hewn tree, suffering injustice, pardoning it. And then a poem about Christmas. This Christmas, the holly will remind us how love bleeds. God in Jesus Christ carries on loving us to the point of death and dies on Calvary with the words of forgiveness on his lips and the assurance of new life through him. The heart of the gospel is about God's love for humanity and his unquenchable desire to rescue it, to bring us home to himself. And all of that is made manifest in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Here is a love that will not let us go. Estranged from him we may be, he still carries on his work of reconciliation. Rescuing is his business. But the danger is, of course, that we might treat it a bit like we might treat a lifeboat. There in case we need it, useful as a backup. But if we don't go out to sea, or when we do are very careful, not really essential. After all, lifeboats are for people who do daft things. But the message of the gospel is that God is not that kind of backstop. Through Jesus, he offers us new life now, for life without a relationship with him cannot be lived in its fullness. And in the New Testament, rescue salvation is also offered to those who appear in their own minds not to need it, the healthy, the righteous, the powerful. And their rescue lies in accepting what they would rather not accept, the company as brothers and sisters of all those whom they had branded as unrescuable, as unworthy of rescue. Them, not us. And it follows from all of this that if rescuing is God's business and Jesus' business, all who have been baptised into him also exist to try and set people free and to fashion the world according to God's will. If God in Jesus Christ came to the world because of his love for it, 
and is concerned for every aspect of it, then so too must we, his followers, be. We too need to tackle issues such as hunger and poverty and injustice and war because they disfigure the creation that God has made. And it's worth remembering that the Bible actually has more verses on poverty than on any other single subject. Moses realised that there was no use talking about the injustice of slavery unless he was prepared to do something about it. If he had just talked about freedom without actually taking action, Pharaoh would have been very happy and the Israelites would have remained in bondage. And the same is true for us. We have to work out in practice in our own situations and take appropriate action where and when we come, where, where we, and where we are if we take the Christian faith seriously. We will be criticised, of course. There will be dismay from those who wish to keep the church in a kind of liturgical straitjacket, and we will be accused of being political. And there will be opposition from those who just want to maintain the status quo. But there may also be joy from people who will begin to understand the real purpose and relevance of the Christian faith. For they will see it, not an institution for those who want to withdraw from society, but as Christ's body on earth, attempting to transform the world created by him. The heart of Jesus' vision was about wanting God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, so that the values of justice and integrity and compassion and grace and mercy might be as prevalent here as they are in heaven. And he longs for us to create the kind of world where that might come to pass. It is for that that you and I have been created. To him be the glory. Amen.